You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's Halloween. So you and I are doing the spookiest possible thing by recording the Co-Main Event Podcast in the middle of the morning. Wow. It's 11 o'clock, generally generally regarded as the spookiest time of the day. The witching hour. Yep. 11 a.m. Everyone at my house is sick, which carries on at least a grand tradition for my daughter to get super sick anytime there's an event she's excited about. I period, E period, Halloween, which she talks about pretty much year round. Uh, so that just, you know, is, is part of a building pattern for her to, to miss out on the thing she's most excited about because of her sickness. That reminds me of when my daughter was really excited to go to a classmate's birthday party. And then I walked into her room at like 5 a.m. That, that morning when I heard her crying and saw her holding her vomit in her own hands. And the first thing she said was, can I still go to the party? No. <laughs> the answer to that is no. Uh, so as a result of that pox, continuing pox on my family, we are recording this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast at your house. Where only one person is sick. Where only one person is sick, but necessitated the early recording time. That's right. And we are also in your basement, uh, which is always chilly, a little bit cold. Always a little spooky. Adds to the spine-tingling fear that we all feel. It's gray outside and just colorful leaves are just flying past the windows. And... Uh, well, I, I emailed you about an hour ago, and you said in order for us to get this done, we were going to have to record at 11 a.m. And we're doing it. So, we're uh, doing the damn thing. As a result, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is even less planned and uh, even, effectively regulated than normal. Even more likely to wind up with some huge news breaking as soon as we're done. That's true. That's, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good point, because we'll wrap this thing up at around noon, when most MMA people are probably rolling out of bed. Uh, and getting ready to break news yeah. for the day. Somebody getting ready to point a gun at a drug tester or something like that. <laughs> We've got music this week from friend of the podcast, The Fifth Element, music producer out of Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. If you like what you hear, you can check him out at facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or on Twitter at The Fifth Element or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. You know, people have have been sending in music again. Uh, for us to use between rounds, but I just haven't had the chance to get any of it set up yet. So, if you sent us music, bear with us. Yeah, it's not because we hate your music, it's because Chad can't get his shit together. Oh, we we will use the music, even if we hate it. It's it's part of the fun. To get the, <laughs> Maybe especially to if get we hate the it. angry tweets and emails uh, every single week. Because well, here's one thing about the music that we use on the Co-Main Event Podcast. Someone's going to hate it. Yeah. No matter what it Definitely. is. Definitely. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, it's a Halloween-themed main event this weekend as El Kirkui takes on the ghost of Rafael Dos Anjos in a spooky battle to determine who will get passed over for the next title shot after Conor McGregor wins the lightweight championship. And in round number two... 
Your dudes over at MMAJunkie.com got their sticky five-hour energy drink stained fingers on a big-ass investor document that says some interesting stuff about the sale of the UFC to WMEIMG. What interesting stuff? Glad you asked. And in round number three, we start the madcap march to UFC 205 with some talk of Chris Weidman's return fight against Yoel Romero in his return fight. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. You know what I was reflecting on earlier today? Please tell me what you were reflecting on. That we oftentimes get tweets and emails to the podcast from people who seem to think that we have a soundboard. Okay. That like when you say listener mail like that. That you're just hitting a button. That, yeah, like I'm pressing a button. No, doing it manually yeah, over here. every single time. 229 times. Yeah, my now. throat feels it too. If you wonder why he's so good at it. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Joe Mizell, who writes, So after a surprisingly civil ber- verbal sparring match on Reddit regarding uh, unions and fighter pay, I thought I'd come to the best MMA podcast with a general question, or maybe a few. Question number one, is there any evidence at all that top earners would make less with the introduction of a fighter's union? I have not been able to find anything. Question number two, what's the deal with the weird split among MMA fans on the fighter union issue? Is this a reflection of society as a whole? I just don't understand why some people don't care that fighters are largely exploited. And question number three, whose responsibility, in your respected opinions, is it to provide promote fights is it the company that calls themselves a promoter or is it on the fighter because one of those had promoter in the job description (laughs) first of all i'll say uh to joe mazel i don't find it surprising that you had a civil uh verbal sparring match on the mma reddit because it's a pretty uh civil place is it really yeah i I would be surprised but i'm also not a member over there well it's it's different than a lot of uh online forums especially around mma you see because it's it's generally, it seems like a more intelligent and reasonable fan flocks. There. I mean, of course, anytime people are discussing things on the interwebs, sometimes things can get a little hairy in there, but uh, it's still, you know, generally a pretty civil place for, to have this discussion. But I've also noticed uh, for the question number two about the split among fans when it comes to uh, potential fighters association or union or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think some of it is that some people just hear union and are against it. They just have decided kind of like in their political views that union equals bad. I think another part of it is that a lot of people, I've heard this from fans before, feel like we don't want MMA to become another one of the pro sports where the, the athletes are overpaid whiners or something, you know, however you see them. Uh, they're all a bunch of prima donnas and you can't get them to do you know, to to really put in the same effort anymore. They kind of, in a sense, they like MMA's, I don't want to say if it, it's a quality of it being a niche sport, but they, they kind of like that it feels a little bit more uh, Wild West out there in the MMA, and they don't want to see it just become another homogenized pro sport, and they fear that a union will lead to that, um, which I guess I understand where that comes from. At the same time, if you knew some of these fighters and you saw what this sport does to their bodies – you'd agree that you got to give them some damn money. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I think that those fears on the on the part of fans are understandable because when most of us were drawn to this sport, it was kind of like a a, a small-time mom and pop shop, if you will, where we've it was people relate it to music all the time, and I think that that's a pretty apt description that it's kind of like we are all underground like punk fans or something, so we feel like this this band that we like appeals to us in a way that it could not possibly appeal to 
uh, quote unquote mainstream fans. And we want to like keep it as this small, uh, you know, kind of like family feeling uh, thing that we are into and other people are not. You're saying Shannon Sharp can never understand us? That's well, uh, Shannon Sharp apparently doesn't understand weight classes or, or you know, who who fights in which weight class. But uh, uh, so I, I get that feeling that people have. But I think that the bad news is that like if this sport continues to grow and can and continues to like uh, pro- project along its current trajectory, that like that stuff is going to happen anyway. The stuff that we fear, like the sport is going to change the caliber of athlete, the way the athlete interacts with the media, the way the athlete interacts with the fans, all that stuff is going to change anyway. We can't stop it. And even if that is a fear of ours, uh, there's still no excuse that. At this point in the in the sport, fighters get such a small piece of the pie that we could double it, and it would still be too low by the standards of of like mainstream modern professional sports. So, like, uh, I understand kind of if those are fan concerns, but at the same time, uh, I think the sport has bigger concerns than like what we think is cool, frankly, unfortunately, which I think is a bitter pill to swallow for some fans, but it's still nonetheless true. Uh, let's talk about this first question here that right. the evidence that top earners would make less with the introduction of a fighters union, uh, because that's a thing that you hear second and third hand having been told to the top fighters. I think there's a highly uh, publicized story about Jose Aldo just came out the last several weeks that he, his story at least is that UFC president Dana White tried to turn him away from supporting the idea of a fighters union by saying that it would lead to Jose Aldo getting a smaller piece of the pie. Has he recanted that one yet and said that he was mistranslated? <laughs> I believe he's still sticking to that one. Okay. We'll see. The time. Give it some time. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the the strongest evidence is that the owners of the UFC would have to make less, uh, which explains why they would want to tell the top earners, hey, this will hurt you. I mean, because that money does have to come from somewhere, but it doesn't have to come from the top earners. Like, well, they could still make that money, but the owners would have to, to make less, would have to line yeah, their pockets with less of it. It's a funny thing to say because to jump to the conclusion that your top-level stars are going to make less money – I think you have to come from like the implicit understanding or the implicit belief that the overall pool of money that is going to be doled out to fighters is not going to increase that much, right? Right. Because if it increased, you know, if the estimated split of revenue that goes to fighters right now is between 13 and 15%, which is what we believe it is, uh, if you increase that to somewhere near 50%, which would bring it the sport into line with other mainstream sports like football and basketball and baseball, uh, my guesstimate is that you would have enough money to go around because you would, like, triple the amount of money that would be available to the fighters. And also something a fighter association might do is be able to get you not just a a bigger cut of UFC revenues, but get you a cut of some of the stuff that you're making possible as fighters, like likeness rights, that, you know, the... The UFC uh, has this deal with EA Sports. In another sport where where there's a players association, you would be getting a big chunk of that money. And that's how a lot of the other players associations fund their association is through likeness rights, you know, through like selling the Madden game uh, for the NFL. So you would be able to start negotiating for some of that stuff as well. So it wouldn't just have to be like, you know, that guy can't get his same cut of the pay-per-view because we got to pay the dude on the prelims. You know, you you can find the revenue from these other places where the UFC has been basically taking it all. 
And there are a lot of larger issues, frankly, at, at stake in this sport that I think having collective bargaining among your workforce could probably help you out with. Right, uh, not just a financial right, issue. Right, not just the financials. Like the UFC does offer health insurance at this point, but could it be better? Could it uh, cover a, a wider array of of ailments and, and, you know, could fighters have more of a say in how that's employed? Or ongoing care for, for fighters when they really need it after their careers are over. Sure, or just like... Uh, you know, in its broadest possible terms, employment status. Like if you're going to fight under this, the current uh, UFC contract and, and in the the current lay of the land, I guess you could say in MMA, like should fighters be employees or should they be independent contractors? So there's there's a lot of stuff out there uh, in the ether that I think having a, a, a well-organized fighter union could help make some headway. Uh, as for the last question, whose responsibility is it to promote the fights? I mean, I think sometimes the, the UFC will put a lot of that on the fighters, um, and sometimes that is unfair. But also, the fighters, the way the system works right now, they do have to realize that if I want to make more money under the, the existing structure of it, that I have to get out there and do some of the work myself. And, you know, the, could the UFC get better about marketing fighters? Yeah, and I think maybe the new owners will they're poised to do a pretty good job of that. They, you know, that's kind of what they do. Uh, but fighters sometimes, you know, I, I've, I've had this conversation with fighters where they'll tell you like, Hey, I want to get out here and make a splash. I want to do this interview. I'm going to talk up, uh, about this guy. You know, I, I need to get some of these headlines. And then when you actually sit down to do the interview with them, they just aren't doing it. And you realize, okay, you don't, you don't necessarily understand how you get to that that conor mcgregor point right like you just see where he is and you think like okay i could do that and not everybody can do it that not everybody can can do it that way at least um so fighters probably yeah they could stand to get a little smarter about that but also uh you know you, the, you, it's a fair question if the ufc is actually building stars like conor mcgregor or ronda rousey or did they just kind of fall on your lap and again if you have a 50 50 revenue split you have an easier time making the case that it should be a 50-50 partnership in terms of whose job it is to promote and sell the fights. Right. Like, if you're making 85% of the revenue, eh, maybe 85% of the uh, onus to sell the pay-per-view is on you. And, but then at the same time, if you're a fighter uh, and you and money is at a premium, like, you also need to take an active role in trying to promote yourself, especially because you exist as an independent contractor. Right. You might end up in Bellator someday. Next question this week comes to us from Josh Mar Montgomery. He writes, I enjoyed reading the little spotlight series from Ben and Steve Morocco over on the MMAJunkie.com about the UFC's revenue and expected growth. The one area I would like to talk about is the fightpass.com. The one-year revenue reported of $14 million, if that is a gross number, gross revenue number, would work out to a monthly average of 116,783 subscribers. When you look at baseline pay-per-view numbers of the most dog shit pay-per-views, such as 177 or 186 and a few more, the reported buy rate is 125,000. As you guys have said, that seems to be a number of hardcore fans that are tuning in just for about anything. With the UFC eyeing the TV deal, bringing in big numbers in 2018, and the reported cutback of international events, where does this leave Fight Pass? I personally see the subscriber numbers, I personally cannot see the subscriber numbers climbing much without at least one very strong, very strong marquee card a month, which is not something that seems to be in the pipeline. Please discuss. Now, Ben, as I said during the intro, we're going to talk in round number two more about the uh, the series that, that you and Stephen Morocco 
did or have done? Is it ongoing? Is there uh, more I think coming? We, we ran the last one today. Okay. About, uh, the, you know, the, some of the particulars of this sale of the UFC to WME IMG. I didn't know if we were going to get into the, the fight pass discussion during the, the round on that topic. So I thought this would be a good one. Uh, to use in listener mail. I also, when I saw this, when I read the MMA junkie story and, and saw this figure for fight pass, I did the same math as Josh Montgomery. And I think that 116, 117,000, you know, rounded off to 120,000, uh, subscribers is about what I would expect for fight pass to have, because as Josh says in this email, I think that that does represent kind of like a rock bottom baseline, uh, for fan support that the UFC can always kind of count on that that many people are just going to buy whatever it offers. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like it does bring up an interesting question of, of the future of that service. Right. I think a lot of the, what you're going to have to ask yourself there is what does it cost to, to run that service? Because that's what WME IMG is looking at. And they also, though, I think one of the things that made the UFC attractive to them was that, Hey, they already have their own over the top streaming service, uh, with kind of a built in customer base there. Um, so it's kind of a question of how many subscribers they think they need for it to be successful. One thing that surprised me in this document was it said it laid out kind of what a success UFC 200 was. Um, and one of the things that it mentions is that 106,000 people signed new subscribers signed up for Fight Pass the week of UFC 200, which was a record, it said, uh, for any previous fight week. And that one, as you'll recall, if you're signing up for Fight Pass, basically to watch the early prelims, what you were watching is... Uh, Jim Miller versus uh, versus Gomi, right? Uh, Gegard Mousasi uh, and uh, Diego Santos and uh, Diego Sanchez versus Joe Lozon. That was your Fight Pass prelims card. So that's what all those people are signing up for. And so it's maybe it's not just that you need to have one great card on exclusive to Fight Pass a month, but it does seem to draw a lot of like this strategy of putting name fighters on the fight pass prelims does seem to work to some extent. Yeah. And I think that that would happen naturally. If these rumors we've heard about a reduction in overall UFC events for 2017, if that happens, you're going to have that process kind of uh, go forth naturally because fewer UFC events will lead to str stronger top to bottom fight cards. And that might give a boost uh, to the fight pass.com. Uh, you know, I I have in the past been critical of the service, but I, I say now and have said all along, I feel like the UFC's digital streaming service is the future, and, and eventually it's going to turn out that all of the UFC's programming is available on Fight Pass, and at that point, you know, it'll be a must-purchase, I think, for MMA fans and UFC fans. Uh, but, it, you know, the next couple of years could be a little bit lean if if some of the strategies that we think I am WME IMG is going to uh, pursue and, and to try to, to increase UFC revenue across the board, if they do cut down on international events, if they do cut down on uh, the total number of UFC events in a year, you're probably not going to see a ton of those kind of like exclusive fight pass only fight cards, at least for the next couple of years. Uh, and so I would think, one of the, the strategies to kind of do an end, end run around that sort of thing might be to try to work a little bit more closely with the smaller independent organizations that are still going to be on Fight Pass. Because if that's the majority of the product that you're offering to people on the streaming service, I think it would be nice to at least have uh, some more UFC tie-ins, you know, or like to feel as though the fighters on those fight cards are all part of a pipeline that is a, that eventually leads to the UFC, uh, which you kind of get with Invicta now right. as part of like 
sort of a, 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 I don't want to say informal because I think it's more of a formal agreement than that, but you get the, the feeling uh, you know, that people like Alexa Grasso are going to wind up in the UFC, who's going to make her debut this weekend on this this fight night card. Uh, and I think it would be pretty easy to build that feeling kind of across the board as long as there was a willingness to do so, both from the UFC and from the, the, the people who promote those smaller independent organizations. And I don't know if that would if you would want to go as far as to have like smaller time regional titles that you could brand as being like part of the UFC pipeline, or if you would just want to feature people that had previously been in the UFC and and were working their way back toward the UFC. But I feel like there are a number of different ways that you could make fight pass a little bit more interesting to consumers, even if you're going to be dealing with fewer exclusive UFC events on that service. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. Next question this week comes from Adrian N who writes, UFC Fight Night Dos Anjos versus Ferguson, better known as the fight card before UFC 205, is here, and you guys better talk about the sneaky good card that it is. I will be there at the arena, and I don't understand why Diego Sanchez is the co-main. Does the UFC think that his last name makes us love him because we don't? Blah, blah, blah. Ex-Bellator. Okay, let's talk about this fight card. Uh, <laughs> wow, you just really blah, blah, blah through some stuff there, huh? Well, it seemed like we were moving in a couple of different directions there. Uh, but we do. All right, fine. I'll make you happy. We mentioned Martin Held here, and then we say, please discourse Dos Anjos versus Ferguson, because we're going to do that in round uh, number one. Uh, and then, is Alexa Grasso the Mexican Paige Van Zant? I think that the overall point of the question here is that we are dealing with like a sneaky good top to bottom fight night card that is that is going to be worth your time if you tune in this weekend uh, for a lot of fights beyond the main event, which we will talk about in round number one. Okay, here's my question to you. Why is it sneaky? Is it because it has the ultimate fighter Latin America three finale, whatever in the name. Like if it were, if it were just called, you know, UFC fight night 98 and we never heard any mention of uh, a tough Latin America finale, would that interest you, Chad Dundas more? Well, I mean, I think you got a number of different reasons why this card is kind of flying underneath the radar. You just had the three week break, right. From, from the UFC where, uh, Maybe people took their eye off the ball a little bit in terms of like tracking this thing from one UFC event to the other. Uh, it also comes up just a week before UFC 205, which is going to suck up a lot of the uh, the air in the room, so to speak. There's going to be a lot of coverage of UFC 205, maybe at the expense of this fight night card. And also, yeah, I mean, come to find out they're doing another season of the Ultimate Fighter Latin America right now. And this is is the finale. And so you see that in the uh, in the title of the event. Maybe you haven't been paying attention to this season of The Ultimate Fighter and you think to yourself, this seems like kind of a stinker, as Ultimate Fighter finale cards can be. Uh, but then you start looking around and you start seeing, uh, you know, that that this there's a lot of uh, recognizable faces and a, and a lot of interesting fights on this card, kind of from top to bottom, really, because you look down at the preliminary uh, fight pass card and you got Sam Alvey versus Alex Nicholson as the... Uh, as the the featured prelim down there and so that gives you some idea as to like some of the depth that you're dealing with on this card yeah uh what i'm curious about is because it is a good card and you know you see like just the the main event right there we talked about earlier a little bit uh that is that'll get you right in your your seat by itself is everybody has everybody learned their lesson about mexico city now about dealing with the altitude and stuff has does has everybody got the memo well, or are you, we going to see a bunch of like tired people vomiting? I mean, if you didn't get the memo by seeing Cain Velasquez lose to to Fabricio Verdum in their Mexico City clash, I don't know what it's going to take to 
to get you to get the message. That seems like a fairly high profile incident of like, oh, wait, one of these dudes showed up really, really unequipped to fight at this altitude. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the other side of that is that if you, as you go down a card like this, you know, if you're Sam Alvey, do you have the room in your budget for whatever you're making to fight in this one to set up camp in Mexico City for a couple of weeks beforehand? I don't yeah. know if you do. That's a really good question. And that, that you know, could be the kind of thing that, that uh, hampers Mexico City as a as a venue for a long time. Because, you know, I, I think from a purely monetary standpoint, probably a lot of these people don't have the resources to be able to, to move down there and, and pull off a training camp at altitude. Uh, so that, that would be one of a number of storylines, Ben, there you go. to keep an eye on this weekend. Uh, I'm excited to see Alexa Grasso make her UFC debut against Heather Joe Clark, uh, in the main card curtain jerker. You've got another pretty decent lightweight fight with Benil Dariush, uh, taking on Rashid Megamedov. Uh, Dariush is the guy who kind of hangs around the outskirts of the lightweight top 10. So that's interesting. Plus you got Ricardo Lamas getting his, uh, I guess he took his BJ Penn matchup back to the store and exchanged it for a fight with Charles Oliveira. Yeah. Is maybe the way to uh, to say that. And it seems like Ricardo Lamas and maybe everyone else in the world not named BJ Penn is happy about that. Well, I mean, yeah, he exchanged it and he got uh, a less high profile fight, but also one less likely to de depress the hell out of all of us. So I'm going to say good exchange. And then, uh, of course, you've also got Diego Sanchez taken on former Bellator fighter uh, Marcin Held. Uh, so yeah, if you are one of the people who was feeling the itch after three weeks off with no UFC event, this is a pretty good appetizer, I would think, to dip your toe back in the pool before UFC 205. I think that that uh, even though you're going to get uh, at least one tough Latin America finale fight on Which the Which also card, means at least one tough Latin America uh, package video package to sit through. You're going to get to meet, find out who Martin Bravo and Claudio Puelas are. Probably, probably going to go to their houses, talk about their, their struggle, uh, growing up. I bet at least one of them is a dedicated family man. Okay. I'm going to get to see him play with his kids a little bit. And the other guy is the playboy out on the town, right? Hopefully. Depends on how well we set this thing up. Okay. Last question this week comes to us from Stephen from Maryland, who writes, Why do fighters keep threatening USADA reps with guns? Tim Kennedy and Jake Ellenberger have both talked about it. Does the UFC's USADA contract say reps can't knock on the door and then have to, and have to climb in through a second-story window? Uh, <laughs> so, Good yeah, a, a couple of high-profile occurrences now, uh, both, I believe, self-reported by the fighters. That's the on interesting their social thing. media. Yeah. Like... Uh, Jake Ellenberger was the most recent one. And to me, that really, that signals a certain mindset. If you're going to jump on your Twitter and be, and like kind of as a hilarious anecdote, yes. be like, uh, I answered the door with a gun and it turned out to be a guy who wanted to drug test me. Yeah. I mean, who, if somebody is knocking at the door, what thought process do you have to go through to think I better grab a gun before I answer this? I assume the thought process of a guy who sleeps next to a gun, right? Because <laughs> you're just waiting at that point. It does, does it make you wonder, though, like, what happens that is not self-reported? What happens where the fighters are actually like, you know what, I should keep that one to myself. I'm not going to mention that that happened. I think that the, the larger question here, and I've kind of thought that for a while that there would be a pretty interesting story on this, would be the MMA industry's larger 
fascination with firearms because almost across the board, I'm not going to say everybody because obviously that, that, that would be too all-encompassing, but it seems to me that a large portion of UFC fighters and UFC coaches, frankly, are on the record as being gun enthusiasts. And it's just an interesting crossover to me. I would like to know exactly uh, you know, what the reasons are for, for their seeming – like if you were going to make a Venn diagram, it seems like the crossover is, is substantial. Is it really that surprising that the same people who would gravitate toward martial arts as a career field would also be interested in weaponry? Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it, uh, maybe it's not surprising at all. It just it always seems uh, like an interesting, uh, like I don't want to say coincidence, but like an interesting overlap there to me that that some of the mo- some of the people who are already probably some of the most dangerous people in the world in terms of hand to hand combat are also not taking no chances. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, maybe if everyone, if like if you're on TV beating people's ass and somebody has a problem with you, they're going to know right off the bat, okay, I cannot win a fist fight against this man if, if, I, if I have to deal with him. So I'm going to have to go straight to, you know, bringing out the, the gun, the, the, the firepower if I'm going to have any chance here at all. They've anticipated that. They're one step ahead boom, they're already well-trained in firearms as well and apparently willing to point them even at people who would just like to knock on the door and collect some of their blood. Now, see, I would say that that is also an interesting point. I would only say that, A, I would like to hear that from the mouth of the fighters. I think that would be like, frankly, make for an interesting story. And B, that alone causes me to question the utility of getting really good at martial arts. Like, you have gotten so good at martial arts that now you also need to pack heat because you assume that anyone who's going to step to you We'll be back in heat. Maybe they're also anticipating a kind of Jason Bourne fight scenario where we both knock each other's guns out of their hands at the same time and they go clattering down the uh, the rooftop onto the, the streets of the Italian villa. Uh, and then we have to fight it out hand to hand. They're just covering all the bases, Chad. No, yeah, I, I know. I just, I do kind of think we should stop pulling guns on USADA reps, though. Yeah, they they seem like maybe they have enough to deal with as it is. Did you remember the... Uh... The what was it, Nevada State Athletic Commission hearing where the guy had to detail Vanderlei Silva running out the back door of the drug test? And like, didn't it seem like the guy who was the you not he guess he was a Nevada State Athletic Commission uh drug testing rep, like didn't it seem like he already had kind of a miserable job? <laughs> yes. Like that dude was kinda like, Yeah, like my job is to pretty much like follow Vanderlei Silva around and try to corner him for a drug test. But don't act like you can't relate at least a little bit to that guy when he talks about sitting around all day at some fighter's gym trying to talk to him because, brother, I've been there. But it just makes me think like this dude already has like kind of a a, a lousy job and now he's also got to worry about Jake Ellenberger barrel rolling out the door. I assume holding the gun sideways, right? Like an early <laughs> 90s uh, gang gangster flick. Yeah. Just seems like probably the USADA guys don't need that headache, man. No, they don't. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have questions, comments, or concerns to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast on all those other days. Some news always breaks. I would expect it to break as soon as we publish this episode. The co- uh, the uh, Breakfast of Champions is short. It's informative. We'd like to think it's funny. If you end up not liking it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. 
As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, speaking both of the Ultimate Fighter Latin America 3 finale and awesome barrel rolls, the main event of this weekend's uh, fight card is Tony Ferguson against Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, as we mentioned a couple times during the introduction, which I'm going to come out and say if you are a mixed martial arts head, if you are one of these hardcore fans that is just in it for the awesome fights, this is one you should have circled on your calendar. Yep. It's going to be a lot of fun. Tony Ferguson is going to go out there with his hashtag I don't give a fuck style and probably pull off some some crazy barrel rolls in the cage. Uh, and Rafael Dos Anjos is going to come out, I would assume, looking to get the bad taste out of his mouth of that uh, first round TKO loss of his title to Eddie Alvarez back in July and uh, is probably going to try to uh, impose his technically near pure peerless perfect pressure style against tony ferguson well see that's what i was thinking which means it's gonna be a lot to like i think in this fight you might with that with that pressure style that rda likes to employ man you could see yourself pressuring your way right into a barrel roll couldn't you yes yeah you can step right into a barrel you're not gonna just pin uh, El Kakui up against the fence like that, he's got plenty of somersaulting kind of action to get himself out of there, I would think. Uh, so that that does seem to me like a recipe for a good time on Saturday night. Yeah, so Tony Ferguson comes into this thing fresh off his uh, exciting fight against Lando Venata about back there in July, which turned out to be a little bit more competitive, I think, than some people expected uh, with Venata coming in as as a late injury replacement uh, but again, showed you that Tony Ferguson is the kind of guy that, that is going to go out there and put on exciting fights, kind of regardless of the opponent. Uh, but you know what? Landon, Lando Venata caught him a couple times with strikes. Yes, he did. And uh, seemed to have Tony Ferguson stunned a little bit. A little bit on Queer Street. If, if you Took were, up residence on Queer Street briefly. If you, <laughs> if you were part of Team El Kakui, would that give you pause with him heading into this fight against the former champion, Rafael Dos Anjos. Well, I think that one is tough to tell because Lando Venata did turn out to be way better than we thought he would and just throwing it all out there too, which you don't often see from a dude making a short notice uh, UFC debut like that. Um, so I don't know if that's enough of a reason for us to think like, well, maybe El Kakui has a questionable chin or he's not as good as we thought he was. Maybe Lando Venata is just a hell of a lot better than we thought he was. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, obviously, you don't want to mess around with a dude like Rafael Dos Anjos. It's a, it's a hell of a step up to go from a dude who, you know, even a really good dude making his UFC debut, and then you turn right around and you're fighting the, the former UFC lightweight champ. The question for me is going to be, how does Dos Anjos bounce back from that fight against Eddie Alvarez? Because we've seen him get knocked out before. He got knocked out uh, by Jeremy Stevens kind of back in the day, uh, and... You know, even though that seems like a thing that can happen to him, he also seems like he can just reel off a whole bunch of high-profile wins with just kind of, as you said, perfect execution of, of 
good game plans, even against really tough fighters. So I could absolutely see him rolling in here and pulling off uh, like just a start to finish great performance against Tony Ferguson. Yeah. And uh, in a way, in, in maybe kind of a weird way, play spoiler a little bit since Tony Ferguson is a guy who's kind of been steadily climbing the ladder uh, the last few years, dating back to his last loss, which was against Michael Johnson back in 2012. Since then, he's put together a string of seemingly more and more impressive victories uh, until he lands himself in this bout, which is officially between the number two and number three lightweight contenders, according to the UFC's official rankings. Uh, and I think Ferguson is the kind of guy who, like we said, has an exciting style and seems like he could be a legitimate title threat and is sort of a guy that people have been waiting a long time to kind of break through, whereas Dos Anjos, even when he was champion, the ongoing discussion surrounding him was kind of about why people didn't care about him. So I think, you know, for those hardcore fans that have been waiting for Ferguson to to break through, that would be kind of a bummer to see him lose to Rafael Dos Anjos and, and therefore be dealt a blow in his quest to become, like, to get that lightweight title fight. But like you said, isn't it, doesn't it seem almost comically inevitable that whoever wins this fight is going to have a really strong case for a lightweight title challenge and probably not going to get it. Probably yeah. something weird will happen. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's one of the more interesting uh, side subplots, I guess you could say, to exist around this fight is that, like I said, it is officially between the number two and number three contenders at 155 pounds. Oh, by the way, though, the following week, your champion, Eddie Alvarez, is going to defend his lightweight title against Conor McGregor, a guy who is already the featherweight champion but has yet to defend it, and a guy that faced at least some criticism from UFC fans heading into this bout, uh, you know, regarding whether or not he quote-unquote deserved to be given a shot at the lightweight title after going one-and-one one in two fights against Nate Diaz in his most recent history. So if Conor McGregor were to win that fight, and become the lightweight champion, it's almost as though you could just wad up these lightweight rankings and throw them out the window. Because we already know, both from Conor McGregor's history and what we suspect about the immediate future of the UFC matchmaking style, that if McGregor becomes the lightweight champion, his matchups will be more predicated around what is going to make everybody the most money rather than this list of numbers on the internet that I'm staring at. Yeah, don't act like you couldn't just slide Nate Diaz into a lightweight title fight against new champion Conor McGregor if it goes down like that. Problem is, though, Nate Diaz can't make 155. That's what Shannon Sharp told me. Yeah, on the TV, Shannon Sharp told me that. Yeah. So that would be an, an interesting wrinkle. Well, the other interesting wrinkle is that also at UFC 205, you got Nermi hanging out there. Uh, all You know, potentially hanging out there as a possible late replacement, I guess, if it should come to that. That seems like one of those instances of the UFC making sure there's a backup plan in place. Uh, but, you know, it kind of, it's rough for a guy like Tony Ferguson because you'd think if you go out there on this winning streak you're on and you say you starch the, the former UFC lightweight champion in the main event in Mexico City, well, damn, man, what else do you have to do? And I guess the question is wait and hope that the right series of events just falls together in your favor. Otherwise, it might be one of those things where you end up years later looking back and going, I spent basically the prime of my career beating a whole lot of people that should have landed me in a lightweight title fight, which never materialized. Yeah, and you would think for the victor 
in Tony Ferguson, Rafael Dos Anjos, you would either wind up with that lightweight title shot or in the case that uh, we go all McGregor on this division, um, you probably end up fighting Nurmi if he well, wins and his then, fight. Then what happens is what? If you finally do become lightweight champion at some point in the, in the distant future, by then you've already beaten everybody that might contend for the title because your path just getting there was so long. Like by then... It'll be like every single possible fight they could put together for you as champion would essentially be a rematch. I mean, in that regard, I think we're lucky that this is happening at lightweight where the UFC basically has a factory that just produces tough-ass 155-pound dudes. An embarrassment of riches, as Chad Nuttis might say. They come rolling off an assembly line just with awesome nicknames and well-rounded skills. And ready to drop to featherweight if it should come to that. Here's an interesting thing, Ben. This fight between Rafael Dos Anjos and Tony Ferguson opened as a completely even pick em. Both guys at negative 120. Uh, the line has moved. Do you If one guy becomes the underdog, do you say the line moved toward him or away from him? I don't know. But we need some betting, some betting, some sharpies need to write into the podcast to tell us how to do that. Uh, the slight underdog at this point is Tony Ferguson. He's going off at plus 110. Uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, the, the favorite at 155. So it would seem that uh, after starting as as at completely even odds, maybe some people expect Rafael Dos Anjos to pull off the win here. You know, if I had to give somebody the edge, I, I agree that this, I could see how this one starts as a pick 'em. Um, but especially in Mexico City at that altitude, and Rafael Dos Anjos's uh, reputation as just a cardio machine, especially later in the rounds, yeah, that that might nudge me in his direction. Have I told you that there is a guy in my neighborhood? who drives around in like a creepy, restored 1950s hearse. I've seen that guy in the license plate that says El Kakui. Oh, no, I did not notice that. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think it's Tony Ferguson, but I also don't look too close because I'm too busy just fucking running every time I see him. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, it's just a a little thing that goes down in my neighborhood. Well, seems like there could be a hashtag lifestyle piece on that guy. Do you want to uh, do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on sure. to round number two. Let's do that. Uh, ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? may be kind of an obvious one. Uh, Fabricio Verdum went on, I believe, his Instagram this past week and, and aired some grievances uh, with his his exclusive Reebok agreement that... that uh, obviously compels him to wear Reebok fight gear when he shows up to fight in the cage. You mean the UFC is exclusive yes, that's Reebok right. agreement. As he pointed out in a follow-up, he does not have a contract with Reebok except on fight night. And part of that Instagram post uh, said that he was trying to pursue a contract with Nike, independent of the Reebok thing. And according to, I believe, the MMA Junkie account, I'm just going to read my favorite line from it. Okay. Following the message was a pair of hashtags that roughly translate to, quote, suck my balls, end quote. Uh, in response to that, Verdum put up a second post a few days later saying that he had been removed from his duties in the Spanish announce table, which anybody who knows anything about the Spanish announce table knows that's just a dangerous job yeah. to begin with. Somebody's going to get body slammed right next to you. Uh, so Fabricio Verdum, for the near future, will not be involved in Spanish language broadcasts of the UFC. Uh, he said, this is his quote, but I don't think it's fair because before Reebok, I came in making $100,000, $150,000, even $200,000 per fight. And now I'm making only $5,000, which is not fair. Uh, we all know that you air these kind of grievances about your employer. You can probably uh, expect some kind of retribution. But I think the are you fucking kidding me part for me comes in 
uh, with the idea that if you really want to convince people that the Reebok deal, that, that everything's going swimmingly for the Reebok deal, like, is this really the right move to, like, hand out a stiff punishment to people who, who might criticize it? Is Does the message that that sends equate to, nah, man, everything's cool. Don't worry about it. I don't know. It just seems like maybe the uh, the wrong way to go about it. Are you fucking kidding me? Although it should be noted, uh, when we were uh, among the MMA Junkie team discussing uh, Fabrizio Verdum's original Instagram post and uh, Fernanda Pretes, our, our Brazilian correspondent, she pointed out that the exact phrasing he used to say suck my balls was, uh, I think in her words, a less aggressive version in Portuguese than okay. it sounds in English. So as nicely as he could say it. Yeah. Which really then made me feel like, damn it, why doesn't English have a a like non-aggressive kind of gentlemanly way to tell someone to suck your balls. Yeah, it's uh we could really use something not like a particularly that. subtle language, I guess. Yeah, I guess not. Which well, this week my are you fucking kidding me goes out to Adam Hunter who is going to make his UFC debut until he popped positive for basically the entire medicine cabinet of Wait, banned substances. How, how many? How uh, many banned I'm, substances? I'm just going I'm just going to read them here. Uh Amoxifen meta- metabolite, boldenone metabolites, nailed it. Methandionone metabolites, pretty really sure nailed you, that pretty one. Sure, you nailed it. Drostonolone metabolites, nailed it. And clenbuterol, nailed it. That's like that's everything. Yeah, that's, I'm pretty sure that's everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I just, I guess, if you're gonna do it, you might as well go all the way, right? Yeah. Although 1980s bodybuilders would be jealous of that report card. It does complicate your tainted supplement defense that you will inevitably launch, uh, it seems, as everybody does, because either you were taking a bunch of contaminated supplements or you had the dirtiest creatine in existence. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, I don't know if you noticed, but me and my colleague Stephen Morocco over at MMA Junkie, we came into some paperwork recently. Yeah, it just seemed like somebody walked out of the front door of the MMA Junkie home office, tripped, and fell down. And when they when they stood up and looked behind them to see what they tripped over, it was a uh, uh, an enormous document detailing the sale of the UFC. Huh? Turned out to be fifty eight pages of a lender presentation. Now, what this thing basically is is a document that the UFC put together, or, and UFC and IMG basically, or and WME IMG, kind of after the deal, the sale was announced and agreed to, but before it was finalized. I believe the the date on it is July twenty second, uh, and kind of going to potential investors and saying, you know, and, and hedge funds and and whatever, saying. Here's why it would be a good idea for you to get in on this. And it's a really good presentation. Like there's a lot of really good graphs and visual depictions of how the the business works and why there's reason to think that it will continue to be even more awesome in the future. It doesn't really mention any potential risks. Like it does not mention that there's an ongoing lawsuit or uh, potential regulatory problems or, you know, even potential lawsuits down the road if like, Brain trauma turns out to be as big a thing in this sport as it has been in other sports. 
none of that really gets outlined here. Uh, but there is a lot of really fascinating stuff in here about the UFC's business and how it works. So this was the document that they sent out to Tom Brady and The Weeknd? Right. Before those guys became this UFC is, investors? This is the one you can imagine Tom Brady sitting there licking his thumb as he as he pages through. I assume he printed his copy out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Squinting underneath his Make America Great Again ball cap. Yeah. And just paging through the UFC investor deck. Yeah. And I then calling up his his broker or whoever and saying... Get me in on this. Tom Brady wants in. All right, well, well, lay it on us, Ben. What what kind of, uh, for those of us that did and or did not read the stories, what what came out of this review of the document? Well, a lot of things really basic. For one thing, uh, one of the interesting things that come out of this was that the sale price, while it was reported as $4 billion, they didn't get all that up front. Uh, they got about three point seven five billion, Which is still a lot. Uh, still, uh, still a boatload of money. And there are still a couple hundred million dollars uh, in bonuses that, that could go around to some of the, the various executives if they hit these certain target goals. And one of the, the target goals is to increase the already kind of record high earnings by basically June of 2017 plus an extra uh, 60%, basically. I think it's more like 61%. They, you know, they basically have to do as good as they did in this kind of record year and a little bit better. Uh, and there's some reason to think that you can do that because you look at UFC 205 coming up. You got Ronda Rousey coming back for UFC 207. You know, you're going to do some pretty huge numbers for all of those. And it also breaks out why getting sanctioned in New York was such a big deal for the UFC just because you can expect to make a lot more money in doing events in New York. Ticket prices for everything are higher in New York. You, they think that they can attract better sponsors in New York. Um, all that kind of stuff. So there's reason to think that you can hit some of those goals. However, it also really incentivizes you to, to make sure you kick ass in the coming months. Like you can't afford to have Conor McGregor go off and, you know, shoot the Irish version of Fast and the Furious. You can't really afford to have Ronda Rousey not come back. Or, you know, you you need your big stars to be in play, especially even John Jones being currently under a you know provisional suspension. I think he has his NSA NSAC hearing today, doesn't he? Uh you need some of those people to be there for you if you want to have a chance because the other thing this document lays out for us is how big a piece of the pie pay per view still is for the UFC. Yeah, it's still the biggest uh, part of their their yearly earnings. Uh, And more and more, especially these last few years, we've seen how those individual personalities have impacted the the pay-per-view bottom line, Uh, you know, primarily with the emergence of Conor McGregor, who has become like basically the biggest UFC pay-per-view draw of all time in a very, very short time. And also, uh, primarily Ronda Rousey, right? Uh, the, I think that they're accounting for as much as like 60% of the UFC's total pay-per-view sales, which kind of makes them, uh, the new George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva with perhaps even more clout. Oh yeah, way more. I mean, they, if you compare them to what George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva did, they, they eclipse it by far. And Conor McGregor, especially, you know, he, uh, UFC 200 is, is hailed in here as being kind of like a huge event. And then, but you compare it to Conor McGregor's last two pay-per-views and both of them, he beats it. You know, he, he is driving so much of that interest right there. But also the UFC at other points kind of goes out of its way to say, look, we're moving toward being less reliant on pay-per-view dollars because they know that in this kind of business, that's 
a somewhat unstable model. It points out that in years like 2008, I believe, to 2011 or 12, uh, kind of consistently they were at about 53, 52% of their revenue coming from pay-per-view. Uh, and 2015, they were down to 39%. Basically, they were able to kind of move that number down at once they got a Fox deal. Uh, and another thing this points out is that WME is hoping for a big increase in contracted media rights fees when the Fox deal expires in 2018 because it kind of expires in a sports rights desert. The, the other big properties aren't available until, you know, I think 2020 or 2021. Some of the other big stuff like uh, NFL or Major League Baseball or, or, and, and that kind of stuff starts to become available. Um, and if you're a network trying to find a big sports property and everybody, you know, sports property uh, fees are on the rise because it's one of the few things that you can still get people to sit down and watch live TV for, then that's going to look like a really attractive option to you. Yeah, and I, I wrote a little bit about that last week in a story I did on Bleacher Report that at least some of the speculation heading into the end of that Fox deal is that the UFC will be able to greatly increase its television revenue by moving away from exclu exclusivity, which means that they would no longer have an exclusive deal with, like, for example, Fox Sports, which is where we're at now, uh, that one of the things it might look at is breaking up the UFC's uh, television offerings into several different pieces and selling them to different networks. So, you know, just by way of example, you could have ESPN catch, like, maybe the the highest level uh, UFC cable television op offerings. You could have Fox maybe keep a piece of it, and you could have uh, some other channel. Uh, We're also looking to unbundle the English and uh, Spanish language broadcasts, too. Sure. So, uh, you know, I guess the long story short is that, like, uh, th th that would be maybe from WME IMG's standpoint, a fairly easy way to increase uh, television revenues. And I think that ultimately you have a really good chance for that to be good for fans also, because if the bulk of uh, UFC programming winds up on a more readily available sports channel like ESPN, which comes standard on, on most cable packages, uh, you might not have to pay quite as high uh, a monthly fee for your cable bill in order to to get the somewhat fledgling and in certain cases buried Fox Sports 1. Right. Well, and there's also other uh, increases, like con planned increases in, in some of the contracted deals that the USC has. It talks about uh, a, a current exposure fee that it gets from Reebok that is set to go up uh, in a couple of years. The same thing from EA Sports, and it has minimum revenue guarantees from both of those. Um, which also makes you flash back to the claim that the UFC was not making a penny off the Reebok deal, which clearly does not seem to be the case. Um, so it does have like the, the pieces in play for a brighter financial future. And, but here's the point where an I, if I were a fighter or a manager, especially if I'm, you know, one of the people driving the UFC success like Conor McGregor and you see, all right, if they made 400, you know, $62 million, off of their content last year, and if pay-per-view was the biggest part of that, and if I was the biggest part of the pay-per-view, you know, here's where I have a an opportunity to ask, am I getting my fair cut of the the proceeds here? Yeah, and and like I said this week and last week, I feel like there's some room for optimism if you are a UFC viewer that things are going to get better for you. But one of the things that this document kind of lays bare for us is that at least the next year or the next year or two, or maybe the foreseeable future in the UFC will necessarily have to be kind of all about somewhat ruthlessly chasing these profits, right? right. They're going to have to 
uh, vastly increase their revenue. And if you happen to be an independent contractor or an employee that works for the UFC, I would take that knowledge and immediately internalize it as, well, my pay is not going to go up. They're not going to come into this thing looking to pay me more if the thing that they have to do is in, is like, uh, kind of single mindedly chase their own, uh, financial gains. And so I think from like a population of athletes perspective, that's not good news. Right. Well, and you already see some of the cost cutting measures and WME IMG lays out its own kind of history of mergers and acquisitions and the cost savings opportunities it immediately found in those. Uh, and it's already found some with the UFC. It says, you know, of a, I believe a base of, uh, 55 million in employee compensation, it hopes to cut 27 million. We've already seen a lot of the layoffs, uh, and it also cites a one-time $5 million uh, total that you'll pay in severance fees, basically. Um, but it has a lot of people on its own side that can do some of the jobs that the UFC had people doing, uh, especially you know internationally. And also, there's an interesting map in here that shows like the, the world and how many fans the UFC thinks it has in there and how much it's making off of media rights deals in there. And it does put a lot of UFC moves in perspective. Like, for instance, in places like Canada and Australia, it makes almost no money. Right? You know, it's it's a couple million dollars from each one of those. Uh, whereas in China, even without, you know, doing a whole lot, it seems like they still think they could stand to focus way hev- more heavily in that market, already beating uh, the, you know, hardcore fans up in Canada. So... Kind of bad news for Canadians, uh, bad news for some of those other places, but you see like places like Brazil, still a super strong market, uh, for the UFC, uh, the US obviously, um, and, you know, areas of Asia and stuff like that seem like that's where the real growth opportunity is going to come. Um, but you also, you know, you, if you're the US, if you're the, the new owners here, it's make more money and spend less money. Um, so if you were one of those dudes getting paid a check to do nothing because of the UFC career you had at one point, I, I hope you saved some of that because one of the cost savings opportunities listed in here is longtime consultants. Ooh, that doesn't sound good for the Chuck Liddell's and Matt Hughes's of the world. Uh, well, it's going to be interesting to see how this impacts the quality of the product, the state of the UFC, the lives of the athletes moving forward for the next year or two. Uh, it will certainly be an enormous ongoing developing story so i would anticipate that we will probably end up talking about it a lot more as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number three Ben, well, because of the stacked-ass nature of UFC 205, we essentially have no choice but to begin our UFC 205 discussions this week. Obviously, they will carry on into next week's show, where I would anticipate, since we typically do three rounds on the podcast and there are three championship fights on the UFC 205 main card, we will probably do a round about each championship fight next week. But you're saying because... 
we have to start now. It's already sucking up some of the air in the room, as it's you said. It's already sucking up some of the air in the room, and in the interest of having it suck up even more air in the room next week, if there are people out there that are really looking to get their emails read on the Co-Main Event Podcast, a hot tip might be, send us some questions about the non-championship fights at UFC 205. There you go. I, don't, I mean, not to pull back the curtain too much, but there you are. Or just send us some questions about some stuff that is not the three championship fights. Kind of increases your chances. This week, though, we're going to talk about Chris Weidman making his comeback against Yoel Romero, who's also, after a manner of speaking, making his comeback. Uh, these two guys have, have an interesting middleweight fight on the main card of UFC 205, and it comes along at kind of an interesting time in both of those careers, uh, both of their careers, I should say. Uh, Chris Weidman looked like a guy who was going to be the future of the middleweight division back when he beat Anderson Silva in back-to-back -back fights. Uh, way back in 2013, his middleweight title reign didn't get quite as far as we thought it might. He defended it uh, three times, I guess, if you count the second Anderson Silva fight, then Lyoto Machida and Vitor Belfort, before dropping the UFC 194 fight to Luke Rockhold uh, via fourth-round TKO. So uh, in the wake of that fight, he had a significant and serious neck injury and now makes his return against Yoel Romero uh, very much, I think, wanting to prove needing to prove that he is still the guy we thought he was yeah even with a pile of trash neck which not always easy i can tell you meanwhile yoel romero has just been streaking through ufc competition he had a couple of close ones uh back in the early days of his career in the octagon but after closing out his strike force career with a loss to uh jay-z or no rafael cavalcante uh jay-z cavalcante that would really be that, something that would have been he... really an upset. Yeah. That would have been a big upset. Uh, that was in 2011. He has not lost since and last fought at UFC 194 where he defeated uh, Ronaldo Chakare Souza, albeit by split decision. Uh, and Romero is a guy who uh, certainly would be on the short list of people who might be next up to fight Michael Bisping if he can beat Chris Weidman. So an interesting middleweight matchup here between two guys who we all think uh, – you know, have the potential to be champion once or once again in the near future. Yeah. And man, this is a hell of a fight. I mean, think about it because you, you put in Chris Weidman's kind of all around ability, the, the sheer athleticism that we've seen from him at times uh, and that, that he just does not have a whole lot of weaknesses in his game. And then you take UL Romero's ability to just go buck wild in an instant and knock you out with something crazy it's hard for me to, to pick a favorite here. Yeah, I think it's interesting, especially because, you know, on top of his kind of like innate athleticism, Weidman uh, has had such a solid all-around MMA game. He's just like a very straightforward, complete fighter. And it will be interesting to me to see if Yoel Romero can work the kind of like unorthodox kind of herky-jerky style that has thus far uh, paved the way for him in his UFC career against a guy who has such, you know, high-level experience and a guy who has been so proficient in all aspects of the game as Weidman. Uh, it, it just makes for an interesting matchup of styles to me. And, you know, if, if Yoel Romero goes out there and does something – astounding and, and crafts one of these explosive high profile stoppages against a guy like Chris Weidman. Uh, boy, I don't know what you, where you go from there other than 
you know, straight to the top. Well, that is the question, though, right now, especially at middleweight where Michael Bisping is the latest champion to seek out the money fights, right? Yeah, he seems to be uh, – what did we say earlier? That we were McGregoring the lightweight division. Same thing is kind of happening at middleweight. Uh, and with Michael Bisping, it's a thing that you totally understand, right? Like he's a guy kind of in the twilight of his career that's been around for a really long time. Uh, it's perfectly understandable for him to win the title and then be like, you know what? Send me your high profile big money fights. Well, yeah, well, it's something, you know, if he is McGregoring the middleweight division, Tyron Woodley tried and did not succeed in McGregoring the welterweight division because while he talked about how he wanted to get those money fights and didn't really care too much about number one contender status, lo and behold, he ends up here taking on the number one contender. Um, though on what's going to be a big money card, so it's not like you have to worry too much about nobody seeing this one or you not getting too good of a cut. Uh, but I don't know. It seems like you can't let him do that forever at middleweight, especially when you have so many great potential challengers. And, to, you know, when you have the possibility of somebody like you could fight Yoel Romero or Chris Weidman or Jacques Array, uh, and you're out there saying, you know what? I think Nick Diaz. I'm feeling Nick Diaz here. Uh, that's one where like, okay, we understand what you're doing. We get why you would want to do it. And yet you should not be allowed to do that. We, we have too many other interesting fights that need to take place for a middleweight title. Yeah. Middleweight is going to be a tough one for, uh, Michael Bisping to hold off the horde with fights against guys like, uh, Nick Diaz. When you consider you have Weidman and Romero and also Luke Rockhold, uh, and, uh, Jacare still out there. Jacare. And then, you know, kind of a host of up and coming guys like, uh, Gegard Mousasi coming into his own, uh, Derek Brunson being on a real roll right now. Robert Whitaker is kind of like the young gun of the division, uh, who's still, uh, very much on an upward tra trajectory. So, uh, the Wolves will be at the door. And then not to mention, you got Tim Kennedy and Rashad Evans fighting at middleweight just for shits and gigs, yeah, Chad. Fair point. Fair point. Uh, Aside from Yoel Romero's advanced age, being 39, almost 40 years old. But looking good. Yeah, still looking very good. Very, very good. Looking good getting off the bus. Uh, I feel like this is more of a must win for Chris Weidman here. Don't, do you agree with that? Because I feel like Weidman comes off that rock old loss, uh, you know, maybe staring down the barrel of a lot of raised eyebrows from the, from the uh, spectator, community of spectators. We really want to know. Was he overhyped? Was did he be just happen to be the guy to fight Anderson Silva on the nights that Anderson Silva kind of showed up being old to uh, uh, use the fight cliche? Or is Weidman really like the next level, next generation athlete that maybe we thought he was for a while? Whereas I feel like if Yoel Romero loses this, uh, his his only his biggest detractor is still his age. Otherwise, I think. Uh, it would be fairly easy for him to work his way back into contention. Yeah, although what people will definitely say about you if you're Yoel Romero and you lose is that uh, USADA got a hold of you, and you know maybe your maybe the fact that you you can't use the tainted supplements anymore uh, hurt your performance. People will definitely say that if he loses, whether that's fair or not. Uh, but I do think if if Yoel Romero loses here because of his age, it could be the thing that decides, well, there goes any chance you have of getting a UFC middleweight title shot. Because you're going to have to fight your way back into contention while we have so many other people already right there in line who look like they could fight for the title at any point right now. I think Chris Weidman, you know, obviously he, he doesn't want to come out there in New York and in his home state and lose this one. But he is coming back from the, the, the neck injury. I don't think it would be too 
hard for him to, to be able to craft a comeback later on. If you know you lose to UL Romero, it's not like you you got crushed by some nobody. You could say, hey, I was coming back off an injury, and that's a hell of a hard fight to take as your first one back. True enough. True enough. And God knows there will be no shortage of uh, free contenders floating around for either one of these guys uh, to fight, even if they lose. Meanwhile, uh, Nick Diaz is just sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring. That's around. right. <laughs> just waiting for that uh, championship contract to get faxed over. The Diaz brothers probably have a fax machine right? oh, yeah. in their home. Definitely. They yeah. got a landline, got a fax machine. I would think so. All right, Ben. Well, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, I'm just saying another thing that you see looking through this investor document is the the kind of plan for the budget moving forward. And of the cuts that we see in areas such as employee compensation and travel and entertainment, we also see a significant cut in what they expect for uh, ultimate fighter production co- costs. Uh-oh. Suggesting that at least a couple of these ultimate fighters that they have running around right now are going to go away. And See, I'm just saying, thank God, <laughs> WMEIMG, you, you are coming to us now in the form of a savior. Just saying. So I guess I don't have to pay attention to the next Ultimate Fighter Baltic States? Yeah, that might not be such an issue. Okay, that's good to know. Well, Ben, uh, this week we see... The annual rollout of the the MMA news site posts where we put pictures of all the MMA fighters' uh, Halloween costumes. Oh, boy. Which, you know, uh, usually goes one of a couple of different ways. I'm going to say the dominant trope for costumes is something sexy but also dead. Okay. So, like... I'm a French maid who is sexy, but who has also been killed. Well, that's you just laid out Ariane Celeste's plan of attack right there. I think that was actually her costume, right? She oh, really? Was a French was maid it, who had been killed. Was it really? Maybe. I don't Come know. On. I, I didn't, I didn't well, look you're that You're making close. a joke. Uh, Misha Tate out there dressed as sexy Luigi from the Mario Brothers, which is a costume that... Why Luigi? Well, I believe she had a Mario. Okay. She was with somebody dressed as Mario. But a sexy you, Mario. If you told me that Misha Tate just had the sexy Luigi costume hanging in her closet for whenever she needed to to grab it up and go out on the town, I would probably believe you. But Ben, two standout costumes this week that are my just saying, and that is, I'm just saying, if you want to get online and see two guys who knocked it out of the park with their Halloween costumes, you need to check out Neil Magny as Prince, which what is outstanding. And also, Mike Brown going as a self-portrait of Vincent Van Gogh. Wow! Yes. Those two guys, they brought it this year. I'm just saying. As if you needed another reason to like Mike Brown. Uh, on the flip side, I assume Mike Perry is going in blackface, right? Don't know. Not, I'm not going after that one. I, ca- I can't wait. I can't wait to see what he does. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. If you uh, tune in next week, we'll look ahead again to uh, UFC 205 and co- cover those three championship fights. We'll also tell you the stuff that happens at this weekend's fight night event. So it's going to be a lot for us to get through. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. What do you, what do you think as far as Halloween costumes? Sexy, uh, sexy... Uh, Bowser? Yeah, Is that where you're going? I'm thinking maybe sexy doctor, but who's been killed? Okay. Maybe cleaver through the skull. There you go. Just uh, That's sexy. carry on the trope. One thing about the uh, Misha Tate, the Ouija costume, is that they have the thing where they have the mustaches on their fingers. Mustaches All right. On their